Okay, so welcome to podcast number six. Um, retitled Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. Yeah, we will do a fancy intro for this as soon as we get it together to do it. <laughs> Which is the story of our podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so we have a bunch of pretty interesting topics this week. I think the biggest one um, that actually just kind of broke on Thursday or Friday is the... Uh, charge that's been filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the federal government, by five members of the U.S. women's soccer team, um, Carly Lloyd, Hope Solo, Megan Rapino, Becky Sauerbrunn, and I know I'm missing somebody now, but... Uh, the fact that you... Uh, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> remember all of them. So, long story short is it's five of the top players have filed a wage discrimination charge um, against the United States Soccer Federation uh, based on the fact that they get paid significantly less than the men's team. Um, so, Jen, I think you've had a lot more experience working um, kind of before the EEOC, which is the acronym for the federal body that they filed this charge with. Um, so, you know, what... I think we've heard, I've heard a lot at least about, you know, where you have women's sports and men's sports like in tennis or uh, professional basketball where the women do get paid less than um, their male counterparts. What is it about this particular case that you think puts the women's national team in kind of a uniquely good position to kind of move forward on a wage discrimination charge? So the EEOC is one of its, like its primary function is to enforce the Federal Civil Rights Act. Um, which bans discrimination based on a number of protected traits. The protected traits include, you know, sex, uh, religious beliefs, national origin, race, things like that. And another uh, area that falls under sort of this, this discrimination would be the Federal Equal Pay Act, uh, which basically says that... Employers are prohibited from discriminating against employees as between employees on the basis of sex by paying wages to employees at a rate less than the rate at which he pays wages to employees of the opposite sex for equal work on jobs, the performance of which requires equal skill, effort, responsibility, and which are performed under similar working conditions. There are a few exceptions for which you can pay um, people of different genders uh, different wages, and that's usually like a seniority system. So, for example, if I have only worked for this company for five years and I do the same job essentially as a male who's worked here for 15 years, it's understandable that because he has, yeah, he would be paid more, even if we are doing relatively the same thing. Or a merit system, or a system which measures earning by the quantity or quality of production. Uh, so I can only make 10 widgets an hour, whereas a guy can make 20 widgets an hour, or vice versa. Um, and the last one is a differential based on a factor other than sex. So those are very limited exceptions um, under which you can get away with paying uh, different genders different amounts of money for equal skill, for doing the same job. And the reason why I think that... Um, the, the claim being brought by the U.S. Women's National Team is really interesting and is different is that you can actually get to a comparison of apples to apples. So, for example, one of the things that um, maybe some of the some of the flack, for lack of a better term, that um, women tennis players um, sort of get when they make similar equal pay claims is that... Um, they, there are in situations, especially with um, the Grand Slam tournaments, where women play up to three sets, right? Whereas the men have to play up to five sets. So, you know, just looking at it very objectively, there, there is this the definite situation, the definite possibility where men would have to play more sets in order to get to, you know, advance in rounds and and when ultimately get to the championship. Um, you know, that doesn't take into account, of course, you know, the revenues brought by Gates for when Serena plays versus someone like Novak Djokovic, and we're not getting into that. But, you know, there could be an argument made where if you're not actually doing an equal amount of work, you can be paid different amounts of money. But here, for the U.S. Women's National Team, these games are the same length. They pay the same, they play essentially the same number of games, or the way that they're paid is based on number of games. So, 
um, you can actually compare apples to apples. Right, which I will say that Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated did a really great job of um, doing just that. He put together a chart where he kind of ran through um, what the women's team members are paid on sort of a, a per game or per season basis versus what the men's players are paid. And just as an example, you know, for um, friendlies, which are, I guess, games that are played not within a tournament setting, the women's team members get paid $1,350 for each game only if they win. If they lose, they get paid nothing. Whereas the men's team gets paid $12,500 for a win, $6,250 for a tie, and $5,000 for a loss. So even if the women's team wins a game, they get paid less money than a men's team that loses. Um, they also get paid uh, the same amount of money regardless of the ranking of the other team, whereas if the men's team is playing a higher-ranked team or Mexico, I'm not sure why it doesn't matter where Mexico is ranked, but so be it. Um, the men's team gets paid like eighteen, almost $18,000 for a win, still gets $5,000 for a loss. Um, and something else that I thought was interesting is that it looks like in the um, EEOC charge, they're not just complaining about the pay disparities, but they're also looking at playing conditions. Mm -hmm. um, the men's team apparently gets to travel in business class. They have to fly economy everywhere they go. Um, the men's team gets a higher per diem when they're traveling for the team. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Food costs the same. Mm -hmm. So that seems a little um, unusual. And I think most importantly, probably from the uh, player's perspective, is the facilities that they're playing on. Um, a big issue leading up to the 2015 Women's World Cup and has since become, uh, I think, more of a hot-button issue because it caused the cancellation of a game in Honolulu is the quality of the fields that the women play on. Um, they, I guess, are expected to play on turf on a pretty regular basis mm -hmm. as opposed to actual grass. Yeah, I think most of the World Cup was played on turf, right? Right, and the women's team actually sued, or some members of the women's team, I think led by um, Abby Wambach, tried to sue the uh, tried to sue FIFA um, to get the grass get basically get the turf replaced and have grass put mm -hmm. in but um, just the way that our court system works it was going to take too long and they may have blown a filing deadline um, which oh. seems like it shouldn't be such a big issue but in fact is um, so yeah I think you're right most of the World Cup was played on artificial turf as opposed to real grass and um, I don't think I ever played soccer on turf, but I am, based on what the women's team um, have said, it sounds like that can be really hard on your mm -hmm. uh, legs, particularly. So, um, whereas the men get to play on grass, and it just doesn't seem particularly fair. So, And another, um, and another point in favor of this case having um, a greater chance of success is the fact that they are both being paid by the same body, which Burke brought up earlier in um, other situations like the WNBA uh, men are being paid, paid by different sources versus the women. So there are, obviously you can't say the same employer is paying people disparately, disparately. disparately yes, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think it's a similar issue with um, the tenant tennis federations because the women's women play under the WTA, whereas the men play under the ATP. Mm -hmm. I think they're both, there may be an argument. I'm not sure about the, um, uh, how they're paid when they play at grand slams. Mm -hmm. If it comes through kind of the umbrella organization that's running the tournament. But, um, that does kind of, in addition to the fact that you can make an argument that women's tennis players don't necessarily have the same amount of work as men. Um, there's also an argument that they don't play for kind of the same employer. Mm -hmm. So that's a distinction um, between who is uh, between those cases to the extent they've been raised and um, what's going on with the women's national team. Something else I found interesting too, is that like with the WNBA and NBA, for example, WNBA, I believe is kind of subsidized by the NBA. It mm -hmm. does not, it's not really a profit making enterprise. Whereas based on the, uh, U.S. Soccer Federation's own forecast, the women's team is going to generate more money mm -hmm. than the men's team. So that's, I think that's another argument I've heard, at least in terms of professional basketball players, that, you know, they don't 
generate the same level of revenue. So mm-hmm. why should we be paying them these kind of exorbitant amounts of money? The market doesn't bear that out. Um, whereas for the soccer teams, you know, it certainly seems like it would if the U.S. Federation's own numbers are saying that the women's team is going to bring in more revenue than the men. And I think that um, raises a point for me, which is Landon Donovan tweeted uh, very recently in light of this uh, the complaint that was filed with the EEOC that he says obviously men and women should make the same amount, but he went on to say that it should be commensurate with revenues and not based on what others make. And that goes to the argument that I kind of find that's BS, which is I understand that there's probably a lot more money flowing into men's soccer internationally, um, but when you have, you know, gate revenues that are fairly different in the United States for between men and women's soccer, um, that, that it shouldn't be, that it shouldn't be based on those kinds of revenues at the heart of it. These teams are playing 90 minute matches against opponents and the amount of work that you exert during those 90 minutes, the, you know, including the, all the pre pre-match stuff and all the post-match uh, obligations, including like going to the media, like those things are exactly the same. Right. So you should be paid exactly the same for that amount of effort. If you want to base bonuses on revenues or ticket sales or any of those mm-hmm. things, I think that's fine that they can be different because of, you know, whatever money comes in due to sponsorship or advertising and things like that. But for the actual act of doing your job, that should be, those should be equal. Right. And, you know, part of me would respond to Landon, Landon Donovan, you know, you guys have not won shit. <laughs> These women, I mean, I guess they hadn't won the World Cup in a few years because I know, I recall when Abby Wambach was on her retirement tour, everybody was very excited. They finally won one for her and she's been with the national team for quite a while, um, but they've won Olympic gold medals you know, the men's team, it's a miracle if they get out of the first <laughs> round at the World Cup. So, um, you know, there's something, I think if you want to look just at revenues, and I guess there's an argument there that it's um, helpful, that's an economic item that even if regardless of whether the men's team is complete crap or they're winning, you know, they make a lot of money by bringing folks in to watch them. It still seems as though these women, based on merit, should be getting paid as much, if not more, than the men. And on kind of on that topic, um, the uh, Evan Davis over at um, 538.com did a pretty interesting comparison where they took Hope Solo and Carly Lloyd and compared their um, earnings to Tim Howard, who is the men's team goaltender, and Clint Dempsey, who, like Carly Lloyd, is kind of the biggest goal scoring threat for the men's team. And they calculated that Carly Lloyd and Hope Solo, based just on their um, salaries and bonuses that they earn through their national team play, make about $240,000 a year. Whereas Clint Dempsey makes $428,000 a year and Tim Howard makes $398,000 a year. So nearly double what the, their female counterparts make. And I just, I cannot come up with any kind of rational justification for that Mm -hmm. extreme disparity. Uh, One interesting item that they pointed out in, um, uh, the 538 article is that the U S soccer federation actually owns the, um, national women's soccer league. So the professional league in the U S and the women's salaries for those leagues were paid through U S soccer. So they were able to back out that piece of their salary. So the amounts they're comparing are just really apples to apples with the national team Mm -hmm. play. And I think that that's, that's the important part because that's really what the law will look at is the sort of apples-to-apples comparison. Um, a recent amendment to the California version of the Equal Pay Act has included the phrase substantially similar work into its analysis. And that essentially means that equal pay is required for men and women who perform substantially similar work, regardless of how their jobs are described. And employers cannot hide behind job titles to justify pay disparities. And they have to actually take a critical look at what their employees actually do. So um, it's it's the fact that they do 
actually identical work in these situations. So what do you think about the argument, um, just to take a step back, the U.S. women's national team, actually I believe both national teams play uh, subject to a collective bargaining agreement that their Mm -hmm. players association worked out with the U.S. Soccer Federation. What do you think about the argument that is these women negotiated these terms, so too bad, you have to live with them. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter that you're getting paid less than the men. They're just better negotiators than you are, so too bad, so sad, ladies. (laughs) So uh, that would probably, I would, that would go back to the exceptions that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. which is it doesn't have an exception for, like, a collective bargaining agreement. It has one for seniority system and merit system, like, the if you're on a production line, how much you produce, um, but it doesn't actually include a collective bargaining agreement. Um, I think that that's I think that that's a tough spot to be in and a tough argument to address, mostly because in situations of bargaining like that, you are really relying on what the employer is telling you sure. is their finances. So if if what the federation is saying is okay, women this is how much money you bring in for us in terms of revenue. And this is how much we can afford to pay you. Whereas they're saying to men, okay, this is how much you bring in to us. And this is how much we can afford to pay you. For example, the women for winning the world cup won basically a winner's bonus of $2 million. Right. And the men who basically got out of the round of 16 and then promptly fell out of the tournament got $16 million or $19 million. It was, it was even nine. Oh, but yeah, it yeah. was very high. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was a significantly larger amount of money, and that's money from FIFA. That's you know we're not getting into FIFA here. We could probably spend days on FIFA, right? But um, so if they're saying that okay, here's a bigger pot of money from which you can draw your salaries from, and this is what we're bargaining about, and then they go turn to the women saying this is your pot of money that we can negotiate over. I think that is that is a tougher a tougher thing, but I can't imagine that, um, for one of our clients to make the differences based on gender, like I can understand making it based on like job classifications or duties or any of those things, but not based on gender. And I know that sports is a very particular situation, but, um, you know, that's why they provided all of the information in their complaint about the forecasts of how much better, how much more money they're bringing in than compared to the men and, Mm -hmm. and, basing their argument on that and again i think that goes back to we're playing these games and they're the same essentially the same games uh so at least for the games you should pay us the same if you want to add on bonuses for like all those other things like what we bring in the advertisers and sponsors that might be that's different that might make a difference yeah and i think to the extent i've seen um sort of pay discrimination based on gender issues come up in our work, it's usually that, you know, a particular job class is mostly filled with women or mm-hmm. like a particular yes. bargaining unit has job classes in it that are largely, um, empl- they largely employ women. And so it's a little more of, uh, I guess you have to take a couple more steps to make the argument that you're paying women less for mm-hmm. sort of similar or equal work, whereas here, just by the nature of the national teams, you have men on one side, women on the other, so it makes the line, I think, a bit clearer. Um, And sort of to your point, mentioning FIFA, they're not a party to this Mm -hmm. um, disagreement, but, you know, taking a step back and trying to give the U.S. Soccer Federation and, I guess, FIFA in some way the benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe there is a rational reason for why they do this, but then you have Sepp Blatter, um, (laughs) who I believe we've talked about in earlier podcasts, but he's just, I mean, he's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> but, you know, he makes comments like the following, which he said in 2004, um, that, you know, in order to, I guess, gain more um, attention for women's soccer, that the women should play in more feminine clothes like they do in volleyball. They could wear tighter shorts. For women's tennis, recently, um, the chief executive of the Indian Wells Tennis Tournament, which I believe is one of the biggest tournaments outside of the Grand Slam, commented, and I quote, when I come back, I want to be someone in the WTA because they ride the coattails of men. 
They don't make any decisions and they are lucky. They are very, very lucky. If I were a lady player, I'd go down every night on my knees, which setting aside the uh, double entendre or whatever (laughs) that might be going on there, you know, in trying to say, well, maybe they have a rational reason for doing what they do. Then you have leaders who make stupid ass comments like this that lead you to believe like, no, you're just not paying them because they're women. And Mm -hmm. that seems deeply, deeply wrong. Um, so for the next steps in this process, so they filed the complaint with the EEOC and the EEOC will investigate. Um, two things can happen. Either the EEOC will close the investigation and issue of these five women the right to sue, which then they can go into federal court and sue the U.S. Uh, Federation. And the fifth woman is Alex Morgan. I can't believe I forgot her. So. <laughs> um, or in the alternative, the EEOC can decide to pursue this on behalf of the U.S. women's national team. And generally, the EEOC will take on cases where there are um, there's an issue where there affects many people. So there's a class of plaintiffs, um, or they think it's a particularly strong case, or if they want to make a point, essentially. Um, but if the EEOC does sue... On behalf of the U.S. Women's National Team, um, the women aren't going to be entitled to other damages and attorney's fees. Uh, whereas if they sued on their own, they could also sue for other damages outside of like back pay, which is what they would be entitled to receive if they were to prevail um, just under an EOC claim. And then based just looking at sort of the comparison that they did between Tim Howard and Clint Dempsey versus... Uh, Carly Lloyd and Hope Solo, that could be millions of dollars in back pay, um, depending on how far back they look. Is there a statute? I assume there's a statute of limitations, which I should probably know, but I wonder how far can they go back? I'm going to say between three and five years. years. Yeah. Um, And another kind of interesting wrinkle to this case is that I think maybe within the past year, the U.S. Soccer Federation actually sued the um, Players Association that represents the U.S. Women's National Team um, to determine when their collective bargaining agreement actually expires, which... I, was, I think both Jen and I had the same reaction. We're like, how in the hell do you not know when your contract expires, even if you um, you know, don't have like a date certain, like it ends on June 30th, 2016? Normally there will be some kind of termination clause that mm-hmm. says upon 60 days notice or until you reach a new agreement. Yes. Um, so that is uh, still hanging out there. And ultimately the two cases might kind of get settled in concert together, but, um, yeah. And, and the reason why this is an interesting wrinkle is one, it sounds like the U S women's national team is really just very upset with the state of their world and rightfully so. Um, but there are, you know, the Olympics are coming up and the women's teams qualified to participate. And essentially the Federation's argument is that if we don't have, some sort of understanding as to the expiration date of this contract, then there actually is no contract and they can strike if they'd like. Um, Normally in contracts like this, there are no strike clauses um, and they will like, once the contract expires, then the party's employees have the right to strike or exercise um, other sort of concerted actions to, um, to either, you know, leverage, negotiations, whatever, but uh, the Federation wants some sort of certainty that the women's players won't strike for the Olympics. Um, I think they're arguing that the contract really expires on, like, December 31st at the end of the year, so that Mm -hmm. would give them you know, three years until the next World Cup and four years until the next Olympics to try and work something out with uh, the Women's Players Association. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a really fascinating um, story, and I totally recommend reading the 538 article and the uh, Sports Illustrated yeah, breakdown, um, just because the numbers, I mean, the numbers are numbers, and you can't, like, objectively can't argue with them. Um, 
and the source is from the Federation itself. So Right. That's what I thought was most interesting is the way that they've been able to use the Federation's own numbers against them. Um, and the women's, the five players are being represented by Jeffrey Kessler, who recently represented Tom Brady in his fight against the NFL. Yes. So um, really high-powered, smart attorney. So we'll see. <laughs> uh he seems to, at least based on some of his comments, he seems to think that if the um, other labor dispute based on the expiration date of the contract isn't somehow settled in favor of the women that they may, um, they'll take whatever actions they have to to get their point across yeah. up to and including striking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this will play out. One thing um, that I think is maybe lost in all this is the length of time this could take. Um, it could take up to a year for the EEOC to complete its investigation process. And as we discussed, I think last time uh, in relation to the Aaron Andrews lawsuit, that lawsuit oh, yeah. took like five years to kind of from start to finish. So mm-hmm. this could be, these ladies could be in it for a long haul. Um, I will say, though, if the EEOC does mm-hmm. get involved, and this is from personal professional experience, um, they will it will move fairly fast through the EEOC process. And um, I believe in the last the last issue that I dealt with, they did get in front of a mediator probably between like six and nine months, which I know might sound slow to everyone else out in the world, but that's actually kind of fast for, for us in in our life. So yeah, things don't move with any particular speed in uh, litigation, but I Mm -hmm. think federal, it does seem like the federal courts move a little bit faster than state courts too. So, Mm -hmm. and this has all been raised to the federal level. So, Mm Um, so yeah, this could extend well into the Olympics, um, you know, as a fan of the U S women's national team, I certainly hope all of our best players are in Rio, but, um, you know, this is an important fight. And I think Alex Morgan, um, when they, they were on the today show and she made the point that they're not really doing this for themselves, but it's for all the girls who are playing now coming up through the system that they don't have to kind of fight this battle. So but it's for essentially women everywhere and doing jobs that are not being paid the same as men who do the same exact job. And I would take Hope Solo over Tim Howard any day. So as much <laughs> as I like Tim Howard, but... I was going to say, she kind of is a little scary. I guess that's true. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about this when... this, And not to make light of domestic abuse, obviously, but um, she was arrested a few years ago for allegedly beating up her nephew and maybe her sister. And people were up in arms that she needs to be treated just like the men in the NFL who've been charged with domestic abuse. And... I think there are clear differences in the way that, you know, men and women have historically been treated when it comes to these issues. But, you know, if you want to treat her like a man when she commits a crime, then pay her like a man when she's on the field. She does her job. Right. Um, So moving from something that is like very serious as uh, equal pay issues to something more salacious, uh, we can go to the Chicago Blackhawks. Yes, and another story of um, women not being treated appropriately. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, you know, this seems like just another item in a long list of the Chicago Blackhawks not really reacting to crimes committed against women particularly well. But over the past couple of months, um, one of their prospects, Garrett Ross, who plays with their um, American Hockey League affiliate, the Rockford Ice Hogs, uh, <laughs> was charged under Illinois' revenge porn statutes. You need to tell me more about the revenge porn statutes. So basically, the revenge, revenge porn is, uh, at least in, under Illinois law, defined as the non-consensual dissemination of intimate photos of... Um, I don't know that it's limited to women, but it's, you know, if you have a naked photo of your girlfriend and she dumps you and now you're pissed off at her posting it online or sending it out to all of your friends, which is apparently what Garrett Ross did. Um, the facts of the case are seem to be that a woman who was involved with one of Mr. Ross's teammates sent him a nude photo of herself. He then distributed it to his teammates and Garrett Ross then distributed it even further. Um, 
And this young woman found out about it. She went to the police in the state of Illinois, um, reported the crime, and they, you know, investigated it for a few months, charged him back in February. And in Illinois, if you're convicted of revenge porn, it is a felony. You can spend three years in jail and be fined up to $25,000. Just this, I think it was this past week or maybe the week before, the charges against Garrett Ross were dropped because, as it turns out, um, he, to the extent he disseminated the naked photos of this woman. It was done while he was in Michigan, possibly on a road trip with his team. Because of that, he didn't commit the crime in Illinois, so he can't be charged under Illinois law. And in Michigan, revenge porn or this dissemination, not Mm -hmm. consensually of naked photos, um, is only a misdemeanor, can only uh, end up with 93 days in jail for your first offense and a $500 fine. If it's your second or subsequent offense, you can go to jail for up to a year and be fined $1,000. So how did the Blackhawks figure into this? He (laughs) was charged sometime, I think, in early to mid-February. The Blackhawks did nothing for like a month. And then the whole story blew up on Twitter, as stories are wont to do nowadays, And only then did the Blackhawks say, like, oh, no, you have to, we're kicking you off the team. And then they said, well, we didn't know about this until a month afterwards. So either their GM is horrible and isn't paying attention Mm -hmm. to what the hell is going on with his players, or they are liars. So does it make a difference because he was on not the Blackhawks, but their farm team, the Rockford, whatever? That's a good question. So I, my understanding of the way that the um, sort of AHL, NHL relationship works is that when you're on, depending on what your contract says, like some players have, uh, I believe they're two-way contracts where they can be kind of switched between the mm-hmm. two teams. Um th- I think whatever the AHL team's decision is, is what would govern. So I don't know that this necessarily would have been a choice that sat entirely with the Blackhawks. Um, No, I was thinking more of the notice issue. Sure. So I would think, particularly based on um, recent history with the Blackhawks, which I will talk about momentarily, (laughs) that... You would, I think the notice initially would be with the AHL team, mm-hmm. um, but given the Blackhawks' recent history with players being accused of inappropriate behavior, behavior as uh, towards women, I would think that it would have risen to the level of the uh, Blackhawks' parent team management mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And uh, by recent history, I am referring to Patrick Kane, star player for the Blackhawks, star player for U.S. Uh, hockey's national team, who was accused of rape over the summer. Um, it was a complete and utter circus, this case. Oh, it was. Um, so it was. Just setting aside whether or not he did anything, the charges were dropped, um, I believe, because there was insufficient evidence to charge him with. Um, to be very clear, there's a really high burden of proof for criminal cases. So just because they can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Blackhawks, when it came to Patrick Kane being uh, charged with this offense, uh, didn't make him stay home from training camp. Really were, I suppose on the one hand, understandably supportive of their player, but definitely seemed to uh, be really tone deaf to the fact that he'd been charged with an incredibly serious crime Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, maybe shouldn't be at training camp. He wasn't going to miss any games necessarily. Like why they couldn't have just had him stay home. I don't understand. But um, here they, once they apparently found out (laughs) since they said they didn't know for a long time, they did kind of immediately cut Garrett Ross. Um, Again, it took a month, but, Good on them, I guess, for dropping it from the team. However, once the charges were dropped, and again, they were dropped entirely for jurisdictional issues, not because there was any proof he didn't actually do this, they reinstated him within like 10 hours, Um, which I just, I feel bad for women fans of the Blackhawks because it very much feels like this is a team that does not give a shit about you. Um, I get it. He is now not charged with a crime, but it just seems like at the very least he engaged in really poor decision-making and did a really awful thing and why there are no consequences to that, except for he wasn't able to play hockey for two weeks, uh, just defies logic. So, but he got the picture from a teammate, right? So was the teammate charged? He wasn't. And that's something I've been trying to do a little more research on because I am not sure why 
that guy didn't get charged. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there was some argument that maybe she consented to by sending him the picture, consented to him disseminating it. I, that doesn't make any sense to me either because if one person, you yeah. know, she sent it to one person and didn't consent, I don't know how it could, down the chain, it would kind of lose her um, consenting to having it spread around. Mm-hmm. Um so that's a really, that's a good question. I haven't been able to find too much detail on why he wasn't charged, but um, he wasn't. I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really difficult balance to achieve when you have individuals who are charged with crimes, who are going through the process and like, mm-hmm. what do you do? And it's so easy to come off as completely tone deaf. And, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, you also face issues with, you can't necessarily jump to conclusions about individuals um, before they've had their day in court, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, as, but, but as an employer, you're not held to the same standard as a criminal justice system. Exactly. So, so you can actually decide, all right, you know what, this actually looks bad and we don't want a player like this. And I'm not saying Garrett Ross or Patrick Kane or any, but we can't have this be the message that we're sending out to our fans. Male and female alike, children, old people, whatever. Like, this is this is not acceptable behavior. Um, so we should do something about it. And I understand that there are like the economics at play, which is you know we want this team to win so that we can win championships and charge more for tickets and and all of that. But it you know it, at some point you do have to set an example for how you're going to manage your workplace and the your your employees. Right. And I think one thing that kind of jumped out to me here and again, I think to Jen's point, you know, there may be reasons that you would kind of uh I'm certainly when you're talking about kind of non-criminal issues, you know, there are reasons that you kind of give stars maybe the benefit of the doubt versus your kind of run of the mill just regular guy player, but here they were very quick well, they weren't very quick, but they did take action against, a, you know, a guy who plays on their minor league team who isn't like a big name, mm-hmm. but with Patrick Kane, they just kind of let the whole thing mm-hmm. play out. And I think the argument was that, oh, he's innocent until proven guilty. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to take any steps that are um, saying that he's, you know, implying that he did something wrong when mm-hmm. we don't have proof that he did. But again, I think to Genevieve's other point, you know, employers aren't expected to satisfy a reasonable doubt standard. Um, you have the ability to make a decision like, listen, we'll keep paying you. Just stay the hell home. Exactly. Don't come in here. So mm-hmm. there's no, I think with athletes, there could be an argument if that goes on for too long that you're having an irreparable impact on my career, yep. which I think we talked about during our last podcast in a different context. Mm-hmm. But Making him stay home during training camp, it was just not a good look to have this dude who was, at least at that point, the case hadn't gone completely sideways. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was, whatever he did, it seemed like something really inappropriate went on in Buffalo by the details that were kind of mm-hmm. not uh, disputed. And yeah, to have him still be there as the face of the franchise. I know at least reading um, some of the female Blackhawks fans that I happen to follow on Twitter or who are, um, you know, cover them for the Chicago uh, newspapers, they felt really conflicted because on the one hand, this is their team star player. And it's true. He was, he had not been proven guilty, but to see just kind of the callous disregard for the uh, seriousness of the allegations, I think was really hard for people to kind of deal with. And I think for us in our line of work, because employers don't have to, you know, rise to the level of like reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. in terms of disciplining their employees, would it have been so hard to have done an internal investigation, put him on administrative leave, not have him come to camp, but, you know, you're essentially saying we are taking this seriously, we are doing our own investigation, and like we have found X or, you know, keep him out for two months and then bring him back in, but at least you're doing something. At least you're showing that you care enough to do something. Yeah. And I do think, I mean, Patrick Kane, I guess, is sort of a special case since he has made spectacularly bad decisions in public um, with beating up the cab driver Mm -hmm. in Buffalo a few years ago. Multiple occasions of public drunkenness where he is just a sloppy mess. Now, in his defense, I guess, I would not want every stupid thing that I did when I was in my early 20s put on blast to the public and he is famous and mm-hmm. that's got to be a challenge for him. But, um, I guess 
particularly with him, it just frustrates me that it seems like he gets to engage in all this terrible decision making and there's no real consequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because he's an, he is an amazing hockey player. I will give him that. Um, but like, but in a criminal justice system, no one is above the law. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I guess yeah. that's not totally true. No one should be above the law. No one should be above the law. <laughs> Who's the other cane? Evander Kane, oh. who was also um, accused of sexual assault during the season, I believe that case has been dropped. I think similarly, there wasn't um, sufficient evidence to move forward, which, again, based on the high threshold the state has to meet, doesn't necessarily mean that nothing happened. It mm-hmm. just means there's not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to move forward. So um, to the, back to the Garrett Ross issue, um, the victim was interviewed, I think, by the Chicago Tribune, um, one newspaper in Chicago, and said she's considering pursuing charges in Michigan because, mm-hmm. again, this was thrown out totally on jurisdictional issues, not on the merits of the case. So um, this may continue, but for the time being, Garrett Ross is back playing with the Rockford Ice Hogs and um, continuing to live his life. So we'll watch this space for updates on this. Uh, speaking of people who are who have information out there against their will, that sort of leaves us with D'Angelo Russell and Nick Young of the Los Angeles Lakers. And earlier this week, um, or was it maybe even late last week, in any event, uh, a video recording um, done by Russell of a conversation he was having with Nick Young made its way out into the into the world via Snapchat, I believe. Right. Um, and it's in this video where Nick Young, better known as Swaggy P, uh, essentially talks about his um, his having cheated on his current fiance Iggy Azalea. Yes. And um, everyone's favorite white Australian rapper. Yes. And <laughs> and in the video, it appears that Nick Young is not super clear on the fact that he was being recorded or videoed or taped essentially. Right. I think it was towards the end where D'Angelo Russell was like, thanks for saying all this on tape. And Nick Young's like, what? Yeah. So, (laughs) um, so first thing right off the bat in the state of California, and I believe this, this took place in California, there is a penal code provision that, uh, prohibits, uh, surreptitious recording. So anytime that you get to record someone, you have to have their consent to record them either like, voice or video. Uh, this is what sort of got Donald Sterling in trouble. Right. I mean, part of it, which is the fact that, um, V Stiviano taped him without his knowledge. Yes. Uh, so, so setting aside the, the violation of the penal code, uh, the bigger issue obviously here is the fact that the Lakers have just fucking fallen apart <laughs> in light of this. Like no one's talking to Russell. He's like, he's being ostracized by his teammates. He's sitting alone at the lunch table and um, he's been booed every time he's been on the court in um, the forum. I think the only person who's come out to defend him is notorious great teammate Kobe Bryant, um, who is basically, I think he tweeted out or made comments to the media to the effect of he's a kid and he's an idiot and, you know, he made a mistake, so let's all move on from this. Which I have some sympathy for D'Angelo Russell because he is like 19 and... Mm. All 19-year-olds are, no offense to 19-year-olds out there listening to this, but most 19-year-olds make dumb decisions all the freaking time. Mm -hmm. And now he is, it's having a really significant impact on his professional career, which seems unfortunate for him. But um, I guess unlike the Blackhawks players we were just talking about, there is a consequence to your (laughs) bad behavior, D'Angelo Russell. So maybe this will uh, teach him something. Um, And I think it goes to sort of the issue of, you know, you obviously have two people in a workplace who are now um, not speaking to one another, but it, like, the fact that their productivity requires them to be good teammates is being impacted. Um, I know that the Lakers have said that, you know, they're basically dealing with it in-house and and that's where it should have stayed. Um, But it's going to be rough. I I don't know how you're going to bounce back from this. Eventually, though, they're professionals and they're being paid vast sums of money right. to play a game. So seriously, just check it at the door. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I think something interesting that has been kind of making its way through, you know, 
NBA Twitter, at least, is this idea that people won't want to come and play for the Lakers now if they keep D'Angelo Russell on the team. Mm -hmm. I believe Marcus Smart has said he would never talk to him again or play with him. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, you know, the Lakers are complete shit this season. (laughs) And the idea is that they've got to rebuild their team. And D'Angelo Russell is, what, the second pick in the draft? So Mm -hmm. what the hell are they going to do? They can't trade their future because he made this dumb decision. Because I don't really think Nick Young is somebody they should be mortgaging their team on but then on the flip side if they can't get anybody good to sign with them because d'angelo russell's an asshole then i don't really know what you do yeah but i mean i think it's it's fine for someone like marcus smart to say something like that because that situation's not going to come up where he's going to have to play with him right and even if they were on the same team i'm sure they'd suck it up and play because again you're making millions of dollars yeah, to like, play a game <laughs> deal with it man yeah, exactly <laughs> um so kind of back to the consent issue Obviously, we only saw the video from D'Angelo Russell's perspective, and it is pretty clear based on Nick Young's reaction that he wasn't told explicitly that he was being taped. But if someone is sitting there with their phone up in front of them, just Mm -hmm. chatting away with you, is there an argument? Now, to take a step back there, I don't think there's been any... any claim that the- any claim that he you know broke the law or if there's any indication <laughs> he's going to be charged under the penal code section that requires consent before taping but let's say there was would he have an argument that Nick Young had to have known that I was taping him because I had my freaking phone up in his face and why would I be standing like that if I wasn't recording the conversation I think he probably would I mean most a reasonable a reasonable person which is normally the standard that is used would say hey that's kind of not a natural way to hold your phone oh. if you're just looking at it you know texting or whatever that there might have been something greater at play unfortunately unlike old school video cameras there's no like little red little light red, like, blinking at <laughs> so you yeah. you know that it's being that it's in record mode but i mean still i think a reasonable person would say hey what are you doing before before doing this. Um, and I don't know that V. Stiviano was ever charged... With a penal with, code violation. Yeah, yeah, with her surreptitious um, recording of Donald Sterling. So I'm pretty sure this D'Angelo Russell thing isn't going to go anywhere, at least in the criminal courts. No, but. and and I didn't, and I don't suspect that it will, um, but it just was sort of an interesting... Um, you know, it's the, the legal portion for which we can talk about yeah. this. Um, Nick Young actually got into a bit of a bother... Um, a couple of weeks ago with another teammate, Jordan Clarkson, where he and Clarkson were alleged to have been making obscene gestures to um, three women in a car that they'd pulled up next to uh, in L.A. And these obscene gestures were so crass and so crude that the 60-ish year old mother of the main spokesperson of the group was, she was just aghast at what was happening. Um, the woman... The daughter actually took pictures of it while uh, she took pictures of Nick Young and Jordan Clarkson, but not of the obscene gestures. So um, there's no proof that they did do this, but they did come out and apologize later on, which indicates to me that they that they did, in fact, engage in this. And uh, the Lakers have said that they're basically being sent to sensitivity training. Um, Yeah. And not for nothing, not to go back to focus too much on the ages of these people, but Nick Young is like 30 years old. (laughs) Get it together, dude. I mean, this is, why are you talking to, I mean, cheating on your fiance is between you and your fiance, but like, don't brag about it in front of your teammates because mm-hmm. anybody could hear it. And then why are you harassing women in the street? <laughs> like you're an adult. You have no excuse for this dumbass behavior. Um, and it just seems like it's a real waste since he, even though he, again, probably shouldn't be the centerpiece of the Lakers team. He's a good player. And it just seems like he's wasting his time and mm-hmm. possibly his talent by having to go to sensitivity training. Cause he acts like an idiot in public yes. and, uh, and who knows, Iggy could be kicking him to the curb. She did tweet out, thanks, bro, to yeah. D'Angelo Russell. And I think she had also mentioned something about, like, their wedding date being moved further further back or something like that. I don't know if that was before the video or um, after the video. but Right. I think she did mention that she's been in a little bit of bridezilla mode and Nick Young thought they should just elope. But I believe those comments were from prior to okay. the release of the video. So... At least in positive news, he is not cheating with Amber Rose because she is friends with Iggy Azalea. So it was just the 19-year-old. <laughs> I think she was unnamed in the video who he is uh, messing around yes. with. Um, 
So that brings us to probably the a new segment in our podcast called the three minute warning. And the three minute warning is like the two minute warning in American football. It's just the Canadian version of it. Because we both love Canada. That's right. So, we, and we love the CFL. <laughs> right. And saying we've got bigger balls didn't really work for two women <laughs> doing a podcast. So, so it's, we've just landed on the three minute warning. Right. And this is basically what we have been calling our hot takes in previous podcasts. So, uh, I think we only have one today. And this is uh, one where we might actually invite some of our colleagues and friends to talk about because we're not great, we're not huge UFC people or MMA people. Um, but man, John Jones has a lot going on. Um, so he's he, been a busy dude. <laughs> he really has, and probably should never be allowed behind the wheel of a vehicle again, based on um, at least the, his most recent escapades. So um, John Jones is a UFC champion, the first one to have his title revoked for disciplinary actions since he was engaged in a felony hit and run, I think last year, where a pregnant woman was injured. Um, but more recently, he was arrested for um, drag racing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, and it wasn't actually drag racing. Right, he was insisting that he was not drag racing. Yes, but, they, but, the, but the statute in New Mexico sort of seems to apply in a situation where you do gun it from a red light even if you're not physically like engaged in racing like so even if you have a heavy foot or something like that I don't know it just seems like it was written in a way that sort of covered a lot of situations and um, Mr. Jones when he was pulled over um, did not react particularly well to this referring to the police officer as a fucking liar Mm -hmm. screaming and yelling at him Um, he did eventually apologize for those comments to the police officer but he still says that he didn't do anything wrong um so he was arrested because this is a probation violation Mm -hmm. i think tied he's on probation from the felony hit and run that he had a while back um and uh as a probation sentence sorry as a probation violation um he's now he can't drive without getting his probation officer's Permission. Permission. He has to go to a driver improvement course. He needs to engage in anger management classes, and he has to do some community service. But he is not restricted from traveling, which is important for him because he has a new UFC championship fight in um, Vegas in about three weeks. Um, So he will still be able to participate in that fight. And he said this is the first time he's fighting sober in his whole career, um, which uh, is just frightening on a different level. Right. Um, And he was apparently sober at the time of this incident. So there's really no excuse for his extreme angry behavior. Um, But he, uh, I guess the judge told him that if he sees him back in court, it's not going to be good for him. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's basically it with John Jones. It does seem like he really struggles with how to drive appropriately because <laughs> the hit and run and his more recent incident, I don't think those are the only two incidents he's had behind the wheel of a car. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I like the fact that the judge was like, okay, because of your <laughs> probation violation, you're not allowed to drive the vehicle. I think that would probably save Mr. Jones on a lot of headaches. Right, and if he's that rich, get a driver, dude. Mm-hmm. I've had that reaction a lot of times. It seems like there have been a number of athletes who have been arrested during the off-season for drunk driving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It certainly seemed like just hire a driver, mm-hmm. save you a lot of hassle. Like um, Ryan O'Reilly, who is a forward for the Buffalo Sabres hockey team, um, was drunk and literally drove into a Tim Hortons over the summer, <laughs> which is the most Canadian crime you could commit. <laughs> well, if he was drunk on like Moosehead or something, that would be... Right, yeah. or Alexander Keats, yeah. <laughs> a particular favorite of mine. But yeah, he got shit-faced and drove into a Tim Hortons <laughs> Why are you not hiring a person, a private driver? Mm-hmm. I guess he was in rural Ontario, but still. Um, just seems like a really horrible idea. Besides the fact that you could kill somebody, including yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know, why go through the hassle? He's going to be in court now. It's mm-hmm. just a bad situation. He wrecked so. a Tim Hortons for a community. Right, which is, if you've ever been to Tim Hortons, that is a real treasure. <laughs> In Canada. So um, hopefully John Jones, now that he's gotten his sobriety, he will learn how to drive like a normal, calm human being, or he'll hire somebody to drive him around because I suspect he has enough money to do that. So Yeah. Uh, 
Mr. Jones. Um, so that's pretty much it for us today. Um, we will be talking extensively with a special guest uh, about the state of sexual assaults on campuses and in sports, um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, and we'll have that up. Um, yeah. So thanks for tuning in to Under Further Review. We'll talk to you soon.